Before we get started in this episode, a quick announcement. As you know, I'm very passionate about acceptance and commitment therapy, and I also run a busy practice in Canberra. We're currently looking for psychologists who are registered in Australia to join our team, who are also passionate about learning about ACT. We provide supervision on a group and individual basis and training around ACT. So if this is you, if you're interested, please express your interest at strategicpsychology.com.au forward slash careers. Look forward to hearing from you. And now back to this episode. Okay, life can be crazy. You're feeling like you're sinking. Just trying to find a meaning. It's time for better thinking. Yeah, better thinking. Time to tune in. Let's go. Welcome back to Better Thinking. My name is Nesh Nikolic, and my guest today is Dr. Christy Goodwin, who is one of Australia's leading digital wellbeing and performance experts. She's a researcher, author, speaker, media commentator who provides science-based solutions to optimize wellbeing and productivity in a digital world. Christy draws on cutting-edge neuroscience and research to explain the profound impacts technology has on our performance and health without prescribing digital detoxes. A fascinating conversation today, quite enjoyable to look at the different ways that technology has in many ways seeped into our day-to-day life and I think some really great insights from Dr. Goodwin today. So I hope you really enjoy this episode. I certainly found a real enjoyable you know, way of looking at my life and I'll be making some changes, that's for sure, about how I do digital life in, in my family from this conversation. Enjoy. Christy, a big thank you for coming onto the show today. Really excited to talk to you about, you know, well-being and particularly in this digital world and, and obviously how we can go about, you know, battling or, or fighting against or, you know, maybe even you know, pushing away from all the distractions that modern life brings. Great to be here. And I think this is, I often say, it's a universal dilemma. There are very few people that I know that haven't been touched by technology in recent years. It's really, I think, crept into every single crevice of our lives, both professionally and personally. And whether we love it or loathe it, it's not going away. So we have to learn um, to live with technology, but to do so in ways that is healthy rather than harmful and um, that will serve us um, rather than enslave us. And I think many of us are just sucked into the digital vortex um, for a host of reasons, um, but we need to find, as I said, ways to live with it um, because it is here to stay. How have you seen it show up and, and creep into our lives? You know, I, I look at my children and, and they know no difference. They they were born in a digital age and you know, that is their their norm. Obviously, for, for us, we've seen it come you know about and, and develop and grow how have you seen it and what are the sorts of things that you've seen that uh, maybe we could talk about you know how we've adapted to it how we've maybe managed it or mm. where, where we've you know, got some question marks about saying gosh this is not looking so crash hot yeah. It, it has grown exponentially. Um, in the digital world, there's something called the digital penetration rate, and it describes how many years it takes a digital technology to penetrate to 50 million global users. 
So way back, can you remember, Nesh, with dial-up internet? Remember the delayed gratification you had to wait while your internet did the do 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 do, do? <laughs> I play that to kids these days and they roll their eyes because for them a slow lag time, seven seconds. Seven seconds if an app or a website hasn't loaded or Netflix temporarily pauses, they're onto something else. Um, so back in the day for um, dial-up internet to hit um, digital penetration rate, it took about 13 years. Facebook took four years, YouTube took two years, Angry Birds took 35 days, Pokemon Go, it is reported, took one to two days, the death by suicide that was streamed on a social media platform last year and then repurposed into a whole lot of content that both adults and children saw on a range of social media platforms um, and video sharing websites, it is reported that that took a couple of hours before 50 million people viewed that. So I think we're seeing mammoth um, and quite significant changes um, to our, our lives. And as I said at the, at the start, it, it is impacting us professionally and personally. There are a few um, facets of our lives that haven't been touched by digital transformation um, in recent years. You know, everything back down to really basic mechanics. A lot of kids have now got apps that encourage them to brush their teeth. They The app times how long they, you know, brush their teeth, or in most children's cases, absence of brushing their teeth for the required period of time. But it, it has just infiltrated every part of our life, how we bank, um, how we connect with other people. And there are certainly advances and, and advantages. So it's not about demonising technology because, you know, you and I wouldn't be having the conversation we are without this. So there are certainly affordances and benefits. I think the problem is that it is crept in very, very quickly and, it is often being used in ways, I think the problem at the moment I see for children, teens and adults is that technology has done two things and they've happened simultaneously. And this is where I think the potential threats are. The first thing that has happened is that technology has brought in a whole lot of little micro stresses into our days. Now, these may seem really benign. Alerts, notifications, video calls, um, multitasking, working for long stretches of time. Our brain perceives all of these as little micro stresses, but these micro stresses accumulate in our days. Now, as humans, we are designed for stress. I don't want to give stress a, a bad name. We actually do need, you know, tolerable amounts of stress. But I believe what's happening is that these stressors are never ending. You know, you go from one video meeting to the next to an alert on your phone, you know, for your electricity provider reminding you that you've got a bill due that they then send you an email about. We're just, it's just constant digital bombardment. So I think these little micro stresses are accumulating and we very rarely now close the loop on our stress cycle. So in years gone by, a tiger chased us, short burst of stress, we'd close the stress cycle, we'd run into a cave. Problem solved. But today, in our digitally demanding worlds, we are being peppered with these little, little micro stresses, you know, watching distressing news stories. You know, in years gone by, we may have read about that in a newspaper article. There might have been some very poor B grade video footage that may have captured it. But today, we're seeing, you know, um, disasters unfolding in real time via live video streaming. We're seeing in some instances fatal shootings that have been recorded and, and shared online. Um, we're seeing, you know, horrific, tragic global events that are being recorded. So these little micro stresses, I think, are definitely um, being presented on a really, uh, you know, prevalent basis in our days. 
The second thing that I think is happening is that our digital habits, both professionally and personally, and let's face it, the two I think are more enmeshed than they've ever been in our professional and personal lives. But I think what's happening is that our tech habits have eroded some of the biological buffers that used to naturally be baked into our days that helped us to manage our stress and feeling overwhelmed. So we used to move a whole lot more than what we do. We're so much more sedentary now as humans again, in part because of our screen use. And we're not sleeping either in the right amounts and getting good quality sleep. And our screen habits are certainly not the only, but a significant contributing factor, I believe, there. Um, Many of us are not getting enough sunlight. And we know, for example, many Australian children are not getting the recommended 90 minutes of sunlight exposure. Now, that is critical not only for their sleep, but we know um, the research tells us that is a key um, factor that will help drop their chances of developing myopic progression, that nearsightedness that we're seeing a really concerning increase in. Um, Believe it or not, even the way we breathe has been changed by technology. So we are supposed to sigh, or we do. We sigh roughly every five minutes. It's our body's way of nicely recalibrating our oxygen and carbon dioxide levels. So it's a almost like a built-in stress mechanic that we have. So we don't realise that we're doing it. I'm not talking about the melodramatic sigh, you know, the exasperated, very clear sigh. Just that it's basically in two inhalations through our nose and an exhalation through our mouth. But when we are on our screens, our sigh rate drops dramatically, meaning that many of us are breathing in a totally different way. And again, this is elevating our stress. So I think it's those collision of those two things, the micro stresses and the annihilation. That's probably a dramatic word, but the erosion of some of those biological buffers. And I think that's what's leading many people to being stressed and distracted. So that was a long-winded answer, but I think that sums up what I see as a researcher and someone personally. You know, I'm not immune to the digital pool. I get sucked into the digital vortex too. Um, And I think they're the two main reasons why um, our screen habits are impacting us. Hmm. Can you talk a little bit more about these micro-stresses? I know in my own personal experience, I'm high in conscientiousness trait. I, Mm -hmm. therefore, you know look at my little red notifications and I try and clear them or I if someone calls me I try and be very cognizant of calling them back messaging them back sending myself a a reminder to make sure I do call them back now can you talk about how these little reminders uh, are are impacting us is is it in the way that I've just described is it beyond that how how does it kind of play out it is. I think one of the chief micro stresses are our alerts and notifications. Uh, they come to us and any external stimulus that comes to that, be it a noise, a vibration, a light, catches our attention. And historically, that was a perceived threat. Our brain saw anything, any unexpected external stimulation as a potential threat. So our brain actually cannot differentiate between a tiger coming to us and a team's notification pinging us. They're both initially perceived as an external stressor. So I think you're exactly right. And again, the tech companies in many ways are working against us. It's no accident that our notification bubbles are red. Um, Red is a, a psychological trigger for emergency, urgency, importance. You know, you think about ambulance colors, surf life-saving colors. You know, most of the emergency vehicles use some sort of red because it's associated with danger. 
Um, the fact that that notification bubble has a number declaring that you have 77 unread emails. Um, for some people like yourself, that is enough to trigger a response. Um, so there are some persuasive techniques um, built in. Uh, but again, there are things that we can do without having to, I, I say, go on a digital detox or remove ourselves from the online world. One of the key strategies I call the micro habits that I recommend people do is to, first and foremost, disable any non-essential notifications. So any social media notifications or basically anything superfluous that you really don't need to know um, at, a, at an urgent basis. After you've turned off your non-essential ones, my second golden rule for notifications is learning how to bundle or batch them. So you can now on all apps and websites just about um, nominate times of the day when those notifications come to you. So I'm a mom to three sons and they're in a lot of sporting groups and I can be peppered with WhatsApp notifications from the minute I wake up to the minute I go to sleep. So I have elected to turn on those notifications at 8 p.m. at night. So I bundle them to all come through rather than them dribbling in throughout the day. I've got a friend in a couple of the groups who keeps an eye out. So if anything is of a, a really critical urgence um, or is of critical importance, I should say, she contacts me so I can go in and check. But I can tell you she contacts me very little. And this, I think, speaks to another big problem is that our digital devices have conditioned us to think that everything is urgent and important. We have become like Pavlov's, you know, we salivate like Pavlov's dogs every time we get an alert or a notification because we've become hooked um, into being responsive. Um, so I think there are a whole host of other micro stresses, you know, alerts and notifications, I think are probably one of the most common one. The second most common thing that I think um, is stressing us and where I think in many of cases we're often oblivious to this is we are spending our days multitasking. Many knowledge workers I know admit I'm in a Zoom call or I'm in a Teams call or a WebEx call and I'm triaging my inbox or I'm partially listening to a meeting and partially catching up on all the Teams chat messages that I've been tagged in. And multitasking is really stressful for our brain. Um, when we're trying to split our attention, it's something we call task switching or continuous partial attention. And we know, first and foremost, it burns through glucose, so our brain's energy supply, because it's really taxing to shift gears between two different or three different tasks. The second thing we know is that the brain releases cortisol because, again, it perceives this as a stressful experience because we are biologically designed to monotask. So women, I hate to say it, but men, you've been right all along. Our brains are never have never been designed to multitask. Um, but a really interesting um, piece of research said that when we multitask, instead of information going to our hippocampus, so that's our memory centre, um, of the brain, I often say it's our brain's hard drive, but when we multitask, information bypasses the hippocampus and is stored in the striatum. The striatum will not help us with long-term memory retrieval. So we're working again, I often say, we're, we're letting technology work against our neurobiology. As, as humans, we've got some core biological needs and we are designed to monotask, not multitask. Um, we are designed to be back at a baseline level of stress, not in this constantly elevated level of stress. So I think if I was to sum it up, I'd say that technology is certainly um, impacting, shaping, moulding our neurobiology, and I think it needs to be the other way around. We need to work um, 
within our biological constraints and use technology in ways that is congruent with how we're designed. I can definitely see there being a pattern of you know, increasing demands, these notifications, at least that's yeah. my experience. And each notification is a demand on my time, a demand on my attention. It distracts, it interrupts, it gets in the way of, of my life where I want it to be. Mm. You also mentioned something, a strategy around turning off non-essential notifications. Do you mind if we just spend a bit of time about working out what, what does non-essential mean? How do we define that so that you know myself and, and, and our listeners can, can try and understand how do I do this? Because I think even that is, can be a complicating uh, uh, position to, to find peace with and understand and, and try and work with, you know, what does that mean for me personally? And we're yeah. all unique and different, but, uh, you know, maybe maybe some of your suggestions and, and your thoughts would be useful here. Yeah, that's a great point. And I, I reiterate what you said that it is bespoke to us. Um, so it's really hard to say this is a hard and fast rule, like disable all social media notifications. Well, if a core component of your job is social media management, that would be really, you know, ill-placed advice. So I think we need to come back to um, where is technology helping me versus where is it hindering me? And I think we need to look at that broader picture. Then I think we need to take back control and say, what role do I want it to have? So even though I use social media for my work, I don't need to be notified every time somebody replies to a social media post. So I have elected because it's not a core component of my job. It's not a core component of something that I find an immense amount of value in. I have elected to um, turn off all social media notifications. Um, I have all email notifications turned off because I have chosen, um, and I'm not always perfect at this, but I try and check my emails um, two to four times a day. Research has actually studied this and said that two to four times a day is the sweet spot for most people. Again, contingent upon your role. If you're in customer service, then you may not have that luxury. Um, but generally speaking, rather than nibbling on it throughout the day, having designated times of the day where we check it is, is preferable. Um, so I've turned off email notifications. I've turned off um, social media notifications. I have also turned off, um, as I mentioned before, I've bundled my WhatsApp notifications. So they're not disabled, but I've just elected what times um, I, or time of the day I'd like those to come through. Um, so I think there are things that we can do. The other thing I want to point out to people is maybe you don't need to turn off all notifications. Maybe you could turn on focus mode and most apps or and platforms now have a focus or a do not disturb mode. So maybe it's just for a window of time in the day um, where you want to mute or disable as many notifications as possible. So maybe it's not an all-day approach. Maybe you're better off just nominating specific parts of the day. Maybe it's when you're out for dinner with your partner and you just don't want to be peppered with distractions. Maybe you're going to watch your kid's swimming lesson and you know last week you had your head buried in the phone. You're just going to commit to this week sitting there and watching as much of the lesson as you can. So I think we need to come up. I call them our digital guardrails. So we need to come up with the sort of rules that work for us in our particular contexts and family commitments and stage of life. Um, but I think there's some thoughts at least for people to ruminate on and figure out what works for them. What are the dangers or, or, I suppose, repercussions of 
not examining our behavior and, and just going with the the current with the flow you know yeah. so much out there at the moment that you know, sucks us in you know clearly extremely clever groups of people including yeah. psychologists and, and other you know people who understand influence infinitely well are involved in developing these apps so that they yeah. can compete in them you know saturated market so they're all working very very heavily on how to capture our attention yeah. and and not only capture our attention but sustain our yeah. our attention that that we maintain viewership and keep going back and for longer periods of time and what what are the pitfalls if we if we don't take stock of this if we kind of just oh look you know i'm, I'm too busy i'll look at that later i'll yeah. another time you know I'll, I'll leave it up to you know focus mode to do it for myself which i never will probably engage yeah i'm hearing what you're saying from a lot of people at the moment the data is telling us um and it varies from study to study but we're seeing really concerning numbers of people presenting with symptoms of burnout um and we know that burnout i believe in its simplest definition we've got a world health um, organization definition but I believe in if we were to drill down burnout it is unresolved stress and I think our tech habits are certainly they're not the only reason I think unmanageable workloads you know we're coming out hopefully the tail end of a pandemic I can't I don't think we can ignore the fact that that has certainly played or, or had attacks on many of us but I think if we really critically examined our digital behaviours, they are having a really significant um, and in many ways often detrimental impact. Um, I'm hearing, I've coined the term ousted, and I, I think many people at the moment are ousted. They're overwhelmed, they're under the pump, they're stressed, they're time poor, they're exhausted and distracted. And I think technology is one of the chief culprits in why many of us are feeling that way. And I think if we don't take back control, I often say, are we a slave to the screen or is technology serving us? Technology was meant to be our servant, not our master. And many of us, I think if we were really honest, are slaves to our screens. Um, you know, research tells us 90% of adults reach for their phone before their partner first thing in the morning. <laughs> um, I won't, I won't, reveal if I do this, but apparently 47% of people toilet tweet, use their devices on the bathroom. So we have become so digitally dependent. I'm worried that if we don't critically examine the role that technology plays in our life, then we are going to look back. And I'm, I'm going to share this story. I heard this um, about a week and a half ago. I met somebody who's worked in palliative care for over 30 years and she told me that obviously it's a you know an incredibly emotionally taxing um, job. But she said in the thirty years there are consistent regrets of the dying, much like I don't know if you've read Bronnie Ware's The Five Regrets of the Dying book. Um, but no, it, oh, it's a brilliant book. It is. Bronnie was a um, palliative care nurse and who started to see consistent themes in people who were facing the final stages of their life. And they had consistent regrets around how they'd lived their lives. This particular palliative care nurse who I met recently said that she's seeing a sixth regret of the dying creeping in. And it's people saying now, I wish I'd spent less time on my phone. I wish I'd spent less time on my devices. I am worried 
these devices have, as you perfectly articulated, they've been engineered by highly intelligent people who know how to lure us in. Um, you know, a really simple technique they use is the autoplay feature. So one video rolls into the next. You used to have to enable that feature. They very kindly made that a default setting. So now on all streaming services, on all social media platforms, one goes into the next. And this creates something called the state of insufficiency. So in the online world, we are never going to feel done. There's always another message, another level, another app, another post that I can consume or news story. And so we never feel finished. And I believe there are a whole lot of things happening all at once that is making technology, I think, potentially rob us of our two most important resources as humans, our time and our attention. And if we don't take back control, if we're not more intentional about how we use technology, I believe these can, and they already are having an, an impact on us. I think we're at a really critical juncture in time where we say, I know it's here to stay, but how can I use it in ways that supports me rather than stifles my health and well-being? And that's where I think the conversation needs to be shifting. What have you found to be people's insights around this topic? You know, it's it's every day we're being bombarded about yeah. news stories, trying to tell us what's important, you know, what war, what famine, what health problem that's going on, what car, what local car crash, the current floods mm -hmm. in Victoria, yeah. you name it, it's out there. Are people aware of what we're talking about at the moment? Is that something that they've given much time to or is it is it something that is, you know, uh, you know, when, when we unpeel the onion as, as, as a metaphor, it's kind of so far down the order, um, but it talks so much to this lack, lack of time or the loss of time and, and you know, the, the loss of our attention. So when I deliver keynotes, I have a slide and I often say we're just drowning in information. There is so much information being thrust at us. Now, again, our human brain is designed to go and forage and seek and hunt information. Biologically, we are designed to do that at a pace, at a cadence and a time that suited us. I don't know, Nesh, if you remember the good old-fashioned days of going to the library and borrowing a book or looking for an encyclopedia. It was always the volume you needed that was missing, um, hiding in some obscure spot in the library. But we are designed to go and get and, and, and get information but now information is constantly being thrust at us. It's like getting a fire hose and that's the information and you're at the other end and your, your hippocampus in your brain is like a little plastic cup trying to catch everything that is being sprayed at us. Um, and so I use the term infobesity. It's this idea that we are just drowning in information and it's you know, it's the vet reminder that it's the school emails that come through to me. It's my grandmother constantly calling me on Skype because she's just discovered what Skype is. It's, um, you know, my boss that's peppering me with emails and Teams notifications to check that I got the email. Like, I just think, and, and research tells us this. So in 2019, uh, 2009, sorry, I should say, research estimated that the average adult consumed about 34 gigabytes worth of data a day. More recent estimates is suggesting that's closer to now 74 gigabytes per day. 
that is a mammoth amount of information. That is more than what our ancestors would have consumed in a lifetime. And our brain has not evolved to cope with that constant um, information. So I think when I use that term and on the slide, I have the picture. I say to people, does anyone else feel like they are the emoji with the head exploding? And I get a resounding yes from people. So I think people are beginning um, to sense that, yes, their, their lives are certainly being touched by this. But I think we often see the solution as a complete extreme. So, oh, therefore, I must do a digital detox or I need to, to get rid of my phone or I, I use the term sometimes colloquially, I need to go on holidays and go laptopless. It's about finding, I think, the middle ground. How can we use these technologies but in ways that, as I've said before, congruent with how we're designed? And that's where I think we need to move the conversation back to. That increase in gigabytes, I'm, I'm assuming, you know, just projecting, thinking about it this way, that that must be predominantly due to the volume of video that we're, we're, we're consuming and, and that's that new level of attractiveness that we love video. You know, you put a video in front of a child and, and they just mm. completely mesmerized you know that that it almost yeah. looks like they're in hypnosis and and you know probably to be fair you look at adults doing the exact same thing so i shouldn't be you know uh, talking about children in that in that yeah. we do the exact same same thing with our screens and our phones um it probably true. speaks to the 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 nuances about a headline is no longer big enough to just capture our attention. Now we just throw video at everything and and sound and you know obviously the the actual even the images are getting more and more uh, nuanced about trying to grab our attention with these big headlines and, mm -hmm. and you know it's it's kind of funny how every headline says that you know the internet has melted down and that you know you're going to be in shock when you find out about this thing just click here everything is just so sensationalized and 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 blown up it's you know an absolute assault on on our, yeah. on our oh it isn't a sensory assault you're exactly right and i think headlines are preying on our negativity bias you know they know very clearly we're much more likely to click on the social media post that's got a negative connotation in the headline or a, a negative image. So I think you're spot on. I think um, it's the bombardment of not only video but also visual information. I think that's why TikTok and Instagram have had such huge success. Um, we know that um, a study was done with young adults and they did some brain scans and they, what they clearly showed was that when these young adults were watching TikTok videos, so in the, the study, they referred to them as short-form customised videos, but what they clearly showed that was that the um, reward pathways in the brain got lit up in ways that didn't result when they watched what they considered long-form video, YouTube. So <laughs> we're at a point in time where YouTube's now considered long-form. So I think that's... Long yeah. Gone are the days of, you know, imagine watching Gone with the Wind or <laughs> if they really watch something long-form. So I think that is certainly happening to many of us. You mentioned that hypnotic state. I think that well, we know for children and, and um, adolescents who spend a lot of time gaming, we know that um, app developers and game developers work very strategically to get kids into a hypnotic state through the choice of background music. 
I don't know if you've ever listened to Fortnite or um, Minecraft, but the music that is played on a lot of other games and apps designed for young people is it's very repetitive, it's very hypnotic, it's to get them into a state of flow. So they become what you described before, what I say is the digital zombie, where they become so enraptured with what is on their device that they lose track of what's happening around them. The other thing that I think is happening for many adults and I heard this being mentioned recently by Professor Andrew Huberman and I went and did some extra reading around what he said and he suggested that because many of us are now spending hours of our days looking at a small screen, so a laptop, a tablet, a smartphone, this is a very narrow gaze and when we have a very narrow gaze, this sends a signal to our brain, I need to be on high alert, there is a potential danger, there is a potential threat. So we shut off our peripheral vision and we activate our sympathetic nervous system. So our fight, flight or freeze response. And this is how many of us are spending hours of our days. Going back to what are our neurobiological needs? As humans, we are designed for a panoramic view. We are designed to be spending most of our days looking at things in the distance, not with a really narrow gaze. So I think all of these things combined are contributing to making us in this heightened sense of stress. And I think this can, I mean, we know stress contributes significantly to people's mental health. We know it significantly impacts, uh, sorry, impacts their um, physical health um, and also their performance. So I think this is the thing we really need to tap back into is finding how can we use it um, in ways that won't exacerbate um, or even instigate our stress response. It's, uh, it's fascinating that you say that because I think we've all had those types of experiences that if you're, you know, at the top of a mountain or some sort of viewing platform, yes. you can see into the distance and the breadth or, you know, standing on the beach, you know, the vastness really hits you. And interestingly, it also, you know, for I think many of us makes us feel a lot less significant than uh, when you know we're looking at something, you know, in our in our sort of foreground, right, immediately in front of us, like our phone, we we see how little and insignificant we we are, um, and how beautiful and liberating that 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 can be. Mm. Beautiful sort of experience experience. It there. is. What and are... we're not doing that, and en- we're not doing that enough. And no. one of my pillars yeah. of digital wellbeing is digital disconnection. You know, I often say we cannot be fully on if we're never fully off. We're not machines when when we're not designed. And even we give our machines time for maintenance. We don't even do that. We afford ourselves that luxury. So we have to have time um, to enter what neuroscientists call the default mode network. We used to call it daydreaming. I don't know about you, (laughs) but I most certainly have never had a great idea in an Excel spreadsheet or in my inbox. My best ideas come when I'm going for a run, going for a swim, when I'm in the shower, um, in the good old-fashioned days of going on a plane with no Wi-Fi and you just daydream. But so many of us now don't have those opportunities. You know, the incidental moment when you would wait for your coffee and you just daydream. Well, now we fill out with our phones. We'd wait at the doctor's surgery and you might flick through a magazine or let your thoughts meander. You get in a lift and you might just daydream or you waited at the bus stop. But now our days are consumed with screens and I think we're missing. That's just so important, not only for our ideation, but also for our well-being as well. What would you say are the strategies, the tips, the ideas to contemplate that that you would suggest to our listeners, to myself, uh, about what we can do 
to uh, actively find a better space for for our souls. What are the sorts of things that you've come up with? And obviously from the research and from, from yeah. listening to others as well, what what comes up that you think is is obviously best? And, and obviously it's for us to go out and, and, and pick and choose to find what works for us, but uh, and ho- hopefully, um, you know, being able to, to, to consider the function of these things. Like while you're talking mm. to me, I keep going back to, you know, I love camping, I love the outdoors. So yeah. my world is, you know, I'm almost obsessional about it. <laughs> being in that space, and, and I know that's because there's just no demand while I'm out there. All mm. the demand is very low. It might be something like cooking. And so all I need yeah. to do is cook and cooking in the bush is an hour, an hour and a half experience. Everything is very yeah. slow. You know, there's, there's no timekeeper. Uh, so what, what are the sorts of things that, that uh, you know, you're aware of that the research says is, is a good way or places to start pondering? So one of the things I say to people is come up with what I call some uh, digital depots in your house. So set spots where devices go at certain times. So in our family, no devices at the dinner table and our kids are really good at keeping my husband and I accountable. Um, So having a spot, a designated spot where devices go at certain times um, and encouraging when friends come over to do the same. And it's interesting, people are a little bit reluctant to hand over their digital appendages the first few times. But as you said, that sweet relief of no one needing me, it's almost the mental respite. And it sounds really trivial, but research from the University of Austin, Texas tells us that even if we can see our phone, sorry, if we can see our phone when we're doing our work, even if it is on silent and face down, it drops our cognitive performance by around 10%. Put simply, seeing our phones makes us 10% dumber. They are literally a brain drain. We are diverting some of our attentional residue to them. Um, So I think having spots where they don't go. So maybe one of your um, digital depots when you work is that your device goes in another drawer. Um, Is it popping it in another room? Because when we are distracted, it takes the average adult 23 minutes and 15 seconds research tells us to get back into a deep focus state. It's called the resumption lag. And we could only imagine how many times we are distracted throughout the day by pings and dings. So coming up with your digital depot, so spaces um, and and places where devices go so you're not using them um, at certain times of the day, whether that be at work or at home. I think partly related to this is having a digital curfew. So ideally, we would want to be off our devices 60 minutes before we go to sleep um, so our body can make the melatonin that helps us fall asleep and hopefully stay asleep and get um, really deep um, restorative sleep that many of us are not getting. Um, So I think coming up with some of those parameters or those digital guardrails, I think Controlling your notifications, Um, I mentioned the two before, so disabling any non-essential, bundling or batching um, those that you do want to come through. And the third option you have is you can create VIP notifications. So when you put your phone on do not disturb or focus mode, everybody is blocked except for those people who are on your VIP list. So whether that's your partner, if you've got aging parents, if you've got children at childcare or school, if you've got a client or a colleague who you need to be contactable um, with, um, then they could go on that VIP list. But it gives you that peace of mind that I can switch it off and the world's not going to end. Because, again, I think we have become 
conditioned into thinking that everything is urgent and important that we have to be responsive. Um, creating some autoresponders, you know, having in your email signature how frequently you perhaps respond to emails. So I call them managing people's tech expectations. Um, when your phone's on do not disturb mode, you can actually customise a response, so a, a text message response that explains to people my phone's turned off. If it's urgent, call back because you can set rules up so if people ring more than twice, they can get through. Um, I've got it set up so when I'm in my car and it picks up car mode, it automatically sends a message to anyone that tries to contact me. And the number of people that reply to that text message saying, how do I set this up? I would love to do this when I'm driving has encouraged a lot of people to do the same. So I think I, I come back to what are our digital guardrails? So where are the places and spaces where we want to use it? How can we be a bit more intentional? Um, and I think for organisations, a key part of this is setting up your team's digital guardrails because a lot of people say to me, I would love to be able to switch off from work at night. I don't want to be checking my emails, you know, while I'm watching Netflix at night, but it's really hard to ignore when everybody else is replying to a colleague's email at, you know, half past 10. So coming up with your digital guardrails for your team, which I think are your accepted norms, behaviours, practices and principles around your how you use technology and I think as we touched on before, the last part of us thriving in this digital world is disconnecting, taking regular breaks. Um, I call them peak performance um, pit stops. So we need to take regular breaks. We are not designed to work for long stretches. We're better off to work in a sprint and have a break and a sprint and have a break. And a break doesn't mean checking social media or cricket scores. A break means doing something screen-free, preferably. <laughs> It's interesting when you're when you're talking about these, there's this nature, at least within me, that that is just trying to object to everything that you're saying. Like, you know, it's saying, okay, how do I put my phone away? I can't because I'm, I need some authentication code if I'm in front of my, yeah. my computer. All these things are firing off trying to resist, trying to say, no, Christy, you don't understand, right? Yeah. Trying to Fight this urge of, of you know I, I must keep control of my phone you know please don't take this away from me <laughs> you know and the other side is saying all of this makes so much sense we've got to be so deliberate to 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 make sure there's a little bit of space between you know, all mm. the notifications and all these demands and, and and our own well-being so that we can as you say you know ponder or or you know. Think about things, you know, whether it's in the shower, you know, because we don't have our phones in the shower uh, or wherever it might be so we can you know, recharge and, and you mm. know, some good ideas can come up and, you know, some of those ideas might be you know, spending time with the family or yeah. you know, getting in contact with another loved one that we haven't spoken to for, for, for some time or other things that are obviously important that, that you know, hopefully don't remain uh, uh, neglected and then obviously you know that sixth regret uh, that, that that's showing mm. up more and more yeah so i had a journalist reach out last week um and she was very vulnerable and she's shared this article um just over the weekend and she was saying she was absolutely horrified when she got her first screen time report on her phone um and it's told her that she had amassed 44 hours a week on her phone the previous week now she said i am saying to my friends and family members, I'm so busy, I don't have time to. She said, I've squandered 44 hours a week 
on my device. Firstly, why? Like, why as an educated person can I not resist the pull? Um, she acknowledged that some of this may have been for her work, you know, maybe doing some extra research on the fly or, you know, responding to any inquiries. But she admitted that a lot of that was on social media platforms, um, consuming news as well. But I think... Um, I, I understand what you're saying. I feel it too. You know, I don't walk the talk all the time. I'm not perfect at these strategies and get lured into the the vortex um, more. And it was the reason I'm so passionate about this topic is it was an awful accident that I had um, trying to figure out how old Billy is. So it was nearly seven years ago. Um, and my son, Billy, was 15 months at the time. And I wasn't supervising him. I went into my emails to send one email because he had decided to um, cancel his expected nap time that day. So I went in just to cancel one conference call that I'd ambitiously planned during his expected nap time, and I saw the avalanche of emails. My notification bubble told me I had 144 unread emails, and I got so distracted that I wasn't watching Billy, and Billy at 15 months old had climbed onto the adjacent lounge near where I was working, and he fell and smashed his face um, on the ground below requiring urgent hospitalization. As someone who studies this, I'm not immune to the digital pool. This was the catalyst for me to say, as somebody who researches and talks about this, what is going on that draws me in? Why could I not resist that 144 notification bubble? And there are so many things at play. Um, you know, I think one of the things I often say to people, the reason technology has become so popular is that, if, I'm sure you're familiar, Nesh, and your listeners may be familiar with self-determination theory. If we drill down our psychological needs, we are designed to connect, to be in control and feel competent. The online world fulfills those needs so perfectly. You know, I can connect with my family members, colleagues, random people that I admire on social media. This is why social media and multiplayer video games have become so popular. They've tapped into that biological need to belong. Um, we get to feel like we're in control when we're scrolling or responding or replying. Um, and we get to feel competent because when I can see my notification bubble go from 144 down to zero, um, I get that sense of, you know, it's a tangible metric of my accomplishment. So it is hard. I'm not. I don't want to say that this is easy and that there's a digital utopia and you turn off your notifications and you walk in, you know, without your phone for a while and all is good. This is hard, um, but we have to get this right because if not, we will potentially be on our deathbeds. And I don't want to end this way, <laughs> but potentially on our deathbeds, wishing that we hadn't given so much of our time and our attention to these devices, and no app. No web developer is going to come along and give us a nice, simple solution. I think it, the onus is on us. The tech companies aren't going to regulate this. Um, I don't know if you've read um, the latest book by Johan Hari, Stolen Focus. Yeah. yeah, I was just about to mention that, that yeah. exactly what you said, you know, in terms of you getting swept up in your emails, you know, this is you know, the, 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 the digital world is like a drug and, and he yeah. spoke about his story and, you know, and that was just really to experiment as part of the research of his book to say, how can I push push this aside? I'll get a new phone that can't connect to the internet and so on and yeah. so forth. And uh, he sounded like someone who is really enmeshed and, and having difficulties with a drug 
uh, and and it was the same type of scenario, and that, that that's what you know. I've got my own stories, uh, mm. you know, and and yeah, you know, recent stories of 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 much the same. Uh, so you know, I think we've got to to try and, and read things like you know Johan Hari's book, Stolen Stolen Focus, and and maybe you can also point us to some other uh, spaces. I know that obviously you're very much in 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 this space. Where can people find out more about you know, this topic, more about you, things that they can do in their own personal lives. So I encourage people, and the irony isn't lost on me, that I'm going to say curtail your your tech habits, but go and watch this television show. (laughs) If if you haven't watched The Social Dilemma, I mean, it's free on, on YouTube now. It used to only be available on Netflix. It's definitely worth watching and worth watching if you've got young people too. Um, they exploit or explore some of the very deliberate design techniques that tech companies use to get us all hooked on their platforms. So I think that is a really good starting point. Um, Cal Newport um, has written several books, um, Digital Minimalism and A World Without Email are two of my favourites. Um, Nir Isle is another um, gentleman who talks a lot about this um, digital space and he wrote a great book called Indestructible, Um which I think I, I often am asked, what's the, the most important skill that kids and teens can develop in the 21st century? And I believe it is something that's more important than their IQ. It's far superior than their EQ, their emotional intelligence. I believe the number one skill that kids and let's face it, we need as adults is our FQ, our capacity to focus. If we cannot focus, we are, and we already are seeing it. You know, we've got drivers who are distracted. Um, The NRMA coined the term smombies, um, smartphone zombies, people who are pedestrians and are distracted by their devices. So again, I think the onus is on us to to cultivate these habits. Um, So I have got a book that was coming out. um, I'm actually submitting to the publisher today uh, my final manuscript, but it will be out in February 2023 called Dear Digital, We Need to Talk, um, Brain-Based Strategies to Tame Your um, Tech Habits in a Distracted World. So it's all filled with really realistic micro habits that people can apply to their digital life so that we're not spending hours of our, our days and nights on these, but using technology in ways that works for us. And that's the interesting thing, you know, the irony of go and watch this or here's another meme. <laughs> Clearly tech has value and has Absolutely. great and has improved our lives in many ways. And then there's another edge to that as well that we need to, you know, be more cognizant of, observe, be, yeah. you know, be in a, being a state of, of noticing it rather than it just dominating us so mm. thank you so so much for for our conversation today christy i really appreciate you also talking about your challenges i think that's a you know, really important part of all of this of, of all of us being able to put up our hands and kind of say mm. you know, this is what it's like to be uh-huh. here you know in, in in a modern world and you know here are some, some great tips and, and strategies about yeah. ways to start thinking about it so it doesn't go out and consume us completely so mm. thank you for the show. thank you Thank you. And can I encourage people to talk to their friends? This is a universal digital dilemma. There are very few people that aren't saying, I'm I'm finding this hard. So I think having those open conversations, because often there's, I call it techno shame or techno guilt. A lot of people think they're the only ones or they're the only families struggling with this. 
this is a mammoth problem. And I think having open conversations with other people about, hey, you know, I found keeping my phone out of my bedroom handy, or I took email off my phone, or I use my favorite app. Um, I'm not affiliated in any way. It's an app called Forest. So you set a timer. And if you adhere to the time limit, and it is so trivial, but you grow a little virtual plant and over time you hopefully grow a forest um so it uses gamification to teach you how to focus your attention but I think just having these conversations especially with the people that matter to us in our life um because we can all share I think collective wisdom and realistic solutions um the go on a digital detox or aim for inbox zero are just completely outdated and unhelpful bits of advice and I think you've got a real, real, real strong point there as well because, yes, we focused a lot on the ones that suck us in and, 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 and keep our attention without a value point. You know, there's, there's mm. other ones. You know, I, you know, while, at least while I was engaged with it, you know, my Apple Watch, you know, trying to close these loops of, oh, yeah. of uh, you know, activity, you know, was in actual fact in, in many ways, you know, uh, quite helpful there were some downsides to it as well but it was quite helpful it, it, it understood that there's a whole lot of people that look exactly mm-hmm. like me who are completely obsessed obsessed with completion you know completion of tasks yeah. so if that ring isn't closed you know he'll get mm-hmm. up and start running at you know 10 p.m at night or something <laughs> um you know and obviously that's not going to be sustainable but uh it, it there are ways in which that, that in which technology is saying we can tap into this in a real positive way, and and you know maybe part of our conversation is also finding apps that actually mm. do that, and, and maybe there will be a trend yeah. that 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 does come out of this, or at least a group of, of apps that kind of say we're hearing you, we understand what's important to you, yeah. and so use our apps rather than your Facebooks of the world yeah, uh, and, totally. and uh, you know, connect in a different way. Um, mm. Actually, before we, before we go, are, are there any ones that you are familiar with that, that do a good job of eliciting our values or our attention on our values of, of you know, being um, uh, available to us to, to remind us about those things? Mm. I do. And I disclose I'm on the scientific advisory board of this app, but um, there's an app that is just about to be released that basically said, we we want to connect. Like this, the digital technologies we have are a perfect conduit for us to connect in many ways. How can we do it so that we're not getting sucked into the infinite scroll and the compare and despair phenomenon that's associated with social media? And they've created an app called Be Hoogly, spelled H-O-O-G-L-Y. So I really encourage people that's launching very, very soon. Um, they've got a website. That's one of, will be one of my favorites. Um, I, I also, depending on your personality type, I often think fitness trackers can be really helpful. Um, again, for some people, they can be more detrimental because it can create some obsessive behaviours, um, can create some performance anxiety. Um, but generally speaking, those sorts of trackers um, I find really helpful. Um, for me, it's anything that's really functional. Um, so I do a lot of online learning. So I consume information on Kajabi. So a lot of the websites, uh, podcasts, again, a great way for me to consume information. Um, so for me, it's those sort of functional apps. But my favorite would be that forest, <laughs> forest app. Um, Pocket is another really good one. So any long form 
content um, that I want to consume that I know I don't want to go down the digital rabbit hole when I'm in my inbox. I pop in my digital pocket and pocket will also read any written text to you as well. And it archives anything that you've saved. So that's another really good one that I like using. But again, I think that's a great suggestion, getting people to share where technology really serves them and has helped them. How does the forest one work and also the hoogly? Can you go into a bit more detail on those? Yes. So uh, the forest one, I'm just trying to see if mine's here. So forest, um, you set a timer. So you say, I want to be doing some focused work for 30 minutes. Do not send me any alerts, notifications. Do not let me open another tab or a browser. If I do, that plant will die and wither on the screen. So if I stick to the time limit and I do focus uh, distraction-free work, then I grow a little virtual plant, so I'm rewarded with a virtual plant. If I succumb to my tech temptations um, and go into the digital vortex, that's when um, I it dies and withers on the screen. So um, the Be Hoogly app is where you create an inner circle. So unlike other social media platforms where you have thousands of friends or followers. Um, with Be Hoogly, it's all about intimate connection. So you choose who you would like in your inner circle um, and you invite them to the app. And then you can use a whole lot of functionality within the app. So you can engage in conversations. Um, you can use this app to coordinate real in-time catch-ups. So you can say, hey, I'm heading to the Bondi to Bronte walk. Anyone else want to join me at Sunday at nine? And people can respond. Um, you can track your um, mood over time and this app will use AI to serve up bespoke content that will help you with whatever issues you might be facing. Um, you can do a, a check-in. So if you're not feeling particularly great, you can share it to your inner circle and they'd be nudged to try and prompt or to reply and respond. So it's really about fostering real connection um, with the people that really matter the most to you as opposed to sort of mass media, social media consumption. I really like that function, the check-in function. You know, I, I know that when, when I've looked at uh, these, you know, big explosion in the, the dating apps, the, mm. the concept that one person can go out and uh, approve another person, swipe left or right or however that works, the, the, the concept that they can say yes without any fear of judgment from the other because the only way you can ever find out, it's my understanding, is, is if the other person says yes as well. So the social embarrassment is taken away and yeah. something small like you know, hitting a button saying I need support and all of my yeah. supports know about it or selected supports know about it is so much easier than actually texting someone and picking up the phone or whatever it might be, yeah. you know, because we yeah. are avoidant of fear, avoidant of shame, yeah. avoidant of, of, you know, not showing that we're, that we're going well, you know, psychologically. So mm. that, that's a great function that, that yeah. I think really speaks to how, you know, obviously psychology works and removes the avoidance barrier. Yeah, and it's all about rich connection. So it's really nudging you to connect to those people in your inner circle, having rich conversations um, and really turning up and connecting. I mean, that is, I think, I'm sure you would agree, our most fundamental psychological need is the need to belong. Relational connection is so important. And 
yes, that's why we often started to flock towards social media, but I think that's really lacking now. You know, we often only see the A-roll edited highlight reel that people choose to curate online. Um, What people are really hankering, I believe, is for authentic, deep connection with a few people. Um, And that's what that app will really provide. That's that amazing thing about that sixth regret, you know, because the regret is not about the screen time. The regret no, is about I didn't what spend. I missed out on. You know, if I if I wasn't looking at my screen, I would have been doing X, and that X is yeah. usually friends and family. Yeah, and that's why I think we, we need to go back to, is this helping or harming? <laughs> is this helping or hindering? Is my phone, if I do want to connect with my friends and family, is this facilitating that or is it taking away, away me away from that? You know, am I... I would say, you know, and I'm not saying we need to watch our kids every swimming lesson, but, you know, when your child finally nails the tumble turn and they come up and their goggles are filled with water and their cap's half off their head and they give you the thumbs up and you miss that micro moment of connection um, because you're on your phone. Like I just think we need to take back our control. I, yeah. I, I actually think it's bigger than that because when our children look at us, which they do oh, all yeah. the time because they are tracking us and when they're tracking us, and we're not tracking them, that says something to a child. And I don't know Isn't what it? the repercussions are going to be, and I don't know yeah. what the, 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 the research says. Uh, maybe you can enlighten us. But uh, Well, there's, there's some preliminary research with, um, with, with mothers, and it didn't matter if they were bottle or breastfeeding, but if they were using a phone, they colloquially called it brexting, so breastfeeding and, and texting but they found that um, this preliminary research suggested that we may in fact be seeing the still face experiment so instead of the baby engaging in facial mapping and ping pong serve and return interaction with the the caregiver what they found was that if the caregiver was on their device they often had a very still face they weren't very animated and so the child was not getting that connection so to be honest in many ways I think we're conducting a bit of a living experiment we don't yet know what the long-term ramifications are. And so I fall back on what do we need as humans? We need to connect. We need to sleep. We need to move. We need sunlight. Um, we need to breathe appropriately. These are some of our biological, neurobiological needs. And we really just have to be, um, as you said, cognizant that these are not being eroded by our tech habits. And I think if we can look at that from that lens, then hopefully we'll be in a better place to curtail how we're using our devices to what that is so scary and maybe because i'm a dad and maybe because i i love my children so much and i'll probably speak for every mum and dad you know yeah. our, our children are our world that is so frightening because it's not even something you'd even think of this is the problem with this with this issue is that we can't see what are the affects that that are occurring yes the studies are out there but you know they're very clunky in, in, in many ways. Fantastic. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, what aren't they seeing? What aren't we able to research? And, and something like that is, is you know, as we know, you know, is fundamental for development of, of children. They yeah. need to, to, to see us and particularly in that space range, you know, where yeah. we're holding them for the breastfeeding. I mean, you know, even if we're taking 20%, 30%, 5%, 80% away from that gaze, my goodness, that is yeah. scary. We're going to compensate somehow or, or maybe you never compensate, but it just changes who we are. Yeah. yeah. 
Well, Absolutely. Some really important, important uh, uh, considerations from this conversation. Thank you so much, Christy. For it's a pleasure. I enjoyed this conversation. I know how uh, you know busy you are, and 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 you know sharing this so that we can all take stock of our, our habits and be you know more present and deliberate in our lives, so that we don't use tech um, you know blindly, and and maybe can you know, reconnect a little bit more or, 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 you know, remember is probably a better word. Remember mm. to be, you know, at least for us a little bit older, remember to be um, doing maybe what our parents did for us. Mm. Love that. Love that. Thanks again, Christy. Pleasure. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, please support it by going to iTunes and putting a review. Subscribe. Share it via social media. And tell others about it. Start a conversation. It's listeners like you that make this able and possible and why we bring in these guests to go out and share their knowledge and resources. And just lastly, if you are a psychologist and you want to go out and be part of a bigger team, develop your experience and get into some exciting work, come to strategicpsychology.com.au forward slash careers and reach out. I'd love to hear from you. Oh,